The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, well, welcome to Squawkbox. So what are we? Tuesday morning with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And we've got some big headlines for you. So US markets kicking off the second half on the front foot. Uh, making gains uh, on some of the major indices, this ahead of the 4th of July holiday. Elsewhere, though, the Reserve Bank of Australia's decision to pause its hiking cycle just in uh, buoying somewhat investor sentiment in Asia. Meanwhile, though, China retaliating against Western chip curbs, imposing export controls on key rare semiconductor materials, gallium and germanium are ramping up tensions with the United States. Further Saudi and Russian output cuts failed to spark a sustained rally in crude prices as recession concerns and a slowdown in China keep a lid on demand. Meanwhile, Meta unveils its Twitter rival Threads, set to launch on Thursday, marking the latest salvo between Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. U.S. markets also seemingly in holiday mode at this point. Uh, don't forget it's the 4th of July holiday. Markets are uh, somewhat uh, disrupted this week with the trading pattern. You can see in trade yesterday, barely any movement on the Dow. Uh, slight tilt to the upside. Uh, big moving stock Goldman Sachs in terms of some of the positive action for the S&P 500, adding about a tenth of a percent. So again, just stepping forward. And on the Nasdaq, uh, a bounce of two tenths of a percent. Worth noting there was a Tesla effect for some of these major broads. Tesla reporting those record deliveries during the months of April to June. That was enough to bolster the stock. You can see 6.9% added to the Tesla uh, bounce that we had. 279.80 on the stock price and so far year to date. We've already been talking about how this has been such a stunning stock to play. 127% so far for the year. So just topping up as we kicked off a, a brand new start to, to the second half to the Treasury markets. And uh, we've got a fairly interesting week as we count down to key data this week. Minutes of course are going to be out. We've got uh, the two-year note of uh, 4.94, so just six basis points off the 5% mark. So we are just shy of that. But inversion, closely watched. We saw that in the Monday trade. Inversion typically means we've got uh, concerns that there's a recession on the horizon. And it's a short-end elevated versus the long-end. And of course, on T-bills, the three-month, uh, a lot of market watchers, of course, are paying attention to. But uh, bond markets now shut as we take a look at uh, the market waiting it up for more trading action. In terms of what we've got on the dollar, let's just take a quick look at uh, those trades. Dollar is on the back foot versus the euro this morning. So we are perched just shy of that 109 handle, uh, euro rather, just slipping slightly at this hour as Greenback uh, manages to make a little bit of a, a, a foothold here at this level. The US dollar firmer uh, weaker versus the Japanese yen, 144.63 dollar yen rates there and uh, pound versus the US dollar. 
on the back foot. A slightly different board we're showing you this morning. I think 126.87 US dollar also uh, moving into the green versus uh, the Swissie at this point. Uh, let's just take a look elsewhere at uh, WTI Brent and gold. We've got uh, Brent at this point half of a percent in the green. WTI also bouncing spot gold prices, uh, putting on about a tenth of a percent. Let me move on to the Asian markets and the early trade looks like this. Japanese stocks pulling back. We're down about 300 odd points and nearly nine tenths of a percent on the Tokyo stock market. So that is a retreat. Hong Kong, Shanghai moving into the green again. Now we did see some uh, earlier gains and you can see we're now rallying about 100 odd points on the Hong Kong market. Australia, the big news out of that part of the world has really been the Reserve Bank of Australia deciding to hold pat on interest rates, but we've got four tenths on the trade. Uh, the big question I think for a lot of market watchers at this stage, Steve, is whether we can actually make gains from here in the month of uh, July, whether we're going to see some sort of summer lull or whether we continue on in the vein, particularly tech games. So I've got a question for you, and it's not the question you expect me to ask. Are you a Stevie Wonder fan? I think most people are, aren't they? I think you have to be. Right. I mean, you know, one of the great geniuses of our life musically as well. The only reason I ask, because one of his pivotal albums, which came out in 1980, was Hotter Than July, which I have actually got on vinyl. And my question is, is there anything hotter than July? And the answer is not really. So I want to show you some absolutely amazing stats about July. This is the first one I want to show you. Let's not go to the second one just yet, because what this shows is that since 2014, where you'll see, and, and viewers, if you're only, you're shaving in front of the shower or whatever, uh, in front of the shower, in front of the, the mirror or whatever, and you're just listing in the background, let me just explain to you what you're seeing here. July, the uh, 2014, the S&P, I've just chosen the S&P, it could be the Dow, it could be the NASDAQ, it's exactly the same kind of data. It was down 1.5%. But every year since then, so eight years, not including this year, we have rallied and we have rallied hard in the month of July. I mean, every single one of those months is a really solid gain. Some of them are stunning. And I'll come back to that last year one moment where we rallied 9.1% in July. Now, what is the best monthly gain of any month of the year as well? And if I just put up the next board as well, if I can do that. Thank you, team. You're, you're absolutely wonderful today. You're really on message. Uh, and July, you can, I picked out the best four months, by the way. The, the, the others are degrees lower. July, by a long shot, since 2009, has an average monthly gain for the S&P of 3.3%. That is a solid Solid again as well, and way beating the, 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 the pre-Christmas rally that you've seen in October and November every year, uh, and, the, and the spring rally as well. Thoughts? You know what's somewhat alarming about this is that typically we would talk about long-term investing, but now we're so much in this dynamic investing environment that we're now trying to pick the months that are going to be the outperformers for markets. But this all obviously all goes to market performance for your own portfolio. In terms of what investors are trading, why would you get at this point? And I was just looking at some of the earnings estimates and you know looking out over the course of this year it has been somewhat grim i think investors have been concerned that those earnings will be taken down they're worried about a recession if you look at uh, the, the second quarter uh, projected earnings were thought to decline the third quarter we start to actually see some improvement 0.8 of a percent earnings growth anticipated for the third quarter but by the fourth quarter eight point two percent earnings growth so we step up from less than one percent in the third quarter to apparently about eight plus percent for the final quarter so if this is a forward-looking market are they playing the assumption that earnings will actually be higher if you dig into the sectors what sectors have uh, investors been buying communication services Uh, that is the area that is thought to see one of the biggest jumps about 36 point 
3% in terms of uh, some of the earnings growth. And particular stocks that investors are looking at, this is according to Afaxet, uh, the likes of uh, Amazon, Meta, Alphabet, NVIDIA are thought to be the largest contributors to the S&P 500 for the fourth quarter of this year. So is the market actually well-placed in terms of the earnings based on the bets we've seen already? Well, look, let, let's just remind viewers that yesterday we were just worried. At this time yesterday, we were talking about Cape valuations, seasonally adjusted forward PEs as well. So there are some caveats to the position we're in. But I just want to go back to that first chart again, because, again, those eagle-eyed amongst you and those who've got a memory longer than a gnat, which is most of you, uh, would notice, look at that rally we had last year. 9.1% in July. Absolutely stellar. But can I show a 12-month chart? Have we got that ready? Ah, oh, we have. Look at that. That's brilliant. Uh, and the point about this chart is, in the middle of the, the, the left-hand side, you can see a peak. You can see a peak. And then look at the precipitous decline down to the October lows. So after a stunning July last year, we did see real cracks appearing. And then, of course, we've had the big rally, which has taken us beyond those points as well. So and this is interesting. The VIX is currently trading at 13.6. We did a bit of work on the VIX last week, didn't we, everybody? And, and, and how historically, brilliant, 13.6, how historically it hasn't been at these levels ahead of recession concerns as well. But the fact, and yet another one of our guests said, well, that's someone just extrapolating two separate pieces of data and trying to tie them together. But what is interesting about the 13.57 is that that shows very clearly to me, and I'm, I'm you know, happy to be disagreed with, that shows very clearly to me the market isn't worried about another kind of July to October precipitous decline. Do we need to be considering monetary policy at this point? I mean, you talk about the July moves. It was a 75 basis point hike that we saw late July last year. And of course, the market is still concerned about what's left, as Jay Powell the other week was talking about, a couple more rate hikes, maybe more. And the question is when they come and Can whether I they just impact say policy. That you are the master of the segue because we're going from markets to central banks. You've done it again. <laughs> Let's talk about the Reserve Bank of Australia, which has left interest rates unchanged, holding its cash rate steady at 4.1%. But it flagged more policy tightening may be necessary in the future as it assesses the impact of rising rates. The hawkish pause comes after the RBA surprised the market in May and June with 25 basis point hikes. Robert Carnell joins us, Regional Head of Research, Asia Pacific at ING. A hawkish pause, Robert. We're coming up with new descriptions for all of the different central bank moves at this point. What did you make of the language from the RBA talking about uh, the fact that inflation is going to be sticking around for much longer than we anticipated? Yeah, well, the RBA has been telling us inflation is going to be around for a very long time, for quite a while. I think their view is it's going to be a problem until 2025, which I think is very, very hard to understand why they think it'll take that long. But actually, the, the, you know, the language that the RBA is using, it could come straight out of something from the Fed at the moment. Very, very similar background in terms of the economy. The inflation numbers are coming down. I mean, they fell very sharply in May against expectations for you know to, to come down much more slowly. The labor market's rock solid, red hot, you could say, and you've got a slight pickup in house prices. It's a real mixed backdrop. But you know, if it's the inflation stuff that you're worried about, that was the thing back in June that really tipped them over to go with that, that, that sort of somewhat unexpected rate hike. That wasn't here this month. And so it's somewhat surprising that the market was quite so divided over this meeting as they were. Robert, I take your point that we can pluck out elements here that are similar to the United States and, in fact, other economies. So I think we're all looking at central banks to see who does what for an idea of where globally central banks are going to be going. When it comes to the Aussies, do you think they're anywhere near close to the terminal rate at this point? 
Yeah, I think they are, but I think it's worth being a little bit cautious. I mean, again, like the US, they've had a, a lot of um, help from from base effect. You know, the, the the big rises month on month that we saw in the middle of last year. Now, as we go into the the sort of back end of this year, once we get past July, the July CPI numbers. Uh, they're not going to be quite so evident until you get right up to November, December. Then it's going to start dropping again. We've got things like electricity tariff hikes to come through in July, which will come through in the September CPI, uh, or the release in September. Uh, and that could see uh, uh, inflation actually beginning to, to trickle back up a little bit. Very, very similar story to the US. If we don't see those month-on-month run rates of inflation coming down, we could start to see that head up again. So that's where we think we might see another 25 basis points of uh, of tightening. But we think uh, the market's still still looking for a bit too much. It's, it's about 1.3 uh, hikes they've got priced in at the moment. I would say that the, the one looks reasonable, but more than that doesn't. Uh, Robert, it was only a couple of months ago. Good morning to you, sir. It was only a couple of months ago that we were saying that the, the Australian Central Bank had made a complete pig's ear of everything, uh, hadn't forecast um, the rate hikes, and got the communication wrong, got it wrong for workers and mortgage holders. Are we saying that they've they've dusted themselves down and actually are back on track now with their structure and with their planning, with their communication? Well, I'll just say I managed to get this one right. So perhaps the communication is going a little better. I mean, June was a was a sort of real um, roll of the dice, and that came up okay for us as well. But the communication has been a real problem for them. I think they've they've tried to use forward guidance a lot, and often in a way that sent the market the wrong way. Um, so perhaps saying saying less is somewhat more useful at times than saying too much more. Let the data. Uh, do the talking. And I think it did do the talking this month. We focused on the inflation numbers. They came down. As long as they're coming down, uh, then there isn't that much more for the RBA to do on top of that. Although, of course, there is some slight confusion coming from things like the labour market. But in the end, as long as the inflation numbers come down, the labour market can do what it does. Robert, a quick word for for those um, of us, me included, who look at Australia, obviously look at the very strong domestic flows, but also look at the importance of key markets such as China. And I've got to be honest, there are still some grave concerns about China and what that means for Australian exports as well. Is the central bank doing making these decisions with a nod to China or is it purely about what's going on domestically? I mean, what you say about China is absolutely right. And Australia is probably one of the most regionally tied into that through its extraction industries and its exports of things like coking coal and iron ore and all sorts of stuff of, of that nature. So it does get moved around by this. But I think the RBA is really focused very heavily on the domestic economy and what's going on there. Um, the inflation numbers are absolutely uh, key for them, but they really are very interested in what's going on in the labour market and probably scratching their head as many other central banks around the world are going, why hasn't it weakened yet? But still, we see inflation coming down. Robert, let me ask you about the Japanese, because there's a conversation that seems to be happening on a daily basis between the Japanese and the Americans, uh, potentially keeping many authorities poised just in case the Japanese intervene in the currency or there is some sort of change when it comes to monetary policy. How are you thinking about what the BOJ and what uh, Japanese authorities will be up to this year in terms of market action? Well, we're actually looking for some um, later this month. We get the uh, the July um, uh, quarterly outlook coming out. We think they'll be revising up their GDP forecast. The, the macro story is looking pretty good for Japan. Actually, you know, better than for most of my career. It's looking really quite promising. We've got inflation finally again. The wages numbers aren't quite doing it for us, but they're certainly looking better than they have in the past. This is perhaps one of the best times the BOJ could 
choose to do something with its monetary policy rather than just doing absolutely nothing. So we think a tweak to the yield curve control policy coming in July, nothing really in terms of policy rates until next year. Um, but this would be a good time. The bond market as well, JGBs, I mean, they're, they're below their uh, their current target. So they're not kind of straining at the ceiling. So again, a good time to be coming out with some minor changes, even if they're just sort of wrapped up as, uh, you know, providing more flexibility rather than an actual tightening of policy. Uh, Robert, thank you very much indeed for your timing today. Perfectly done, sir. Uh, Robert Carnell, Regional Head of Research at Asia Pacific ING, and he says he's very excited because he got it right. Um, right, China is set to impose new export restrictions on semiconductor materials, according to the Commerce Ministry. Uh, exporters will be unable uh, to ship two key minerals out of the country from August 1st without a permit. It's the latest move in a tit-for-tat standoff uh, with the US, Netherlands and Japan all seeking to impose tighter controls on curbs of key semiconductor technology to China. Quick word out of South Korea on this one as well. Uh, impact of China's export control would be limited uh, considering government's inventory and alternative supplies. So says South Korea's industry ministry, which adds cannot rule out possibility of expansion of China's export controls to other items and will continue to closely monitor developments as well. Well, let's get out to Sam, uh, who has more. Of and if ever there was a rare earth that was named beautifully, it's got to be Germanium. What a nice one. Germanium or gallium as well. We've all been furiously reading about what they're, what they're made for and what their, their industrial uses are. But you already knew, Sam, didn't you? Yeah, and uh, don't get it confused with geraniums either because uh, they're a lot prettier, I would say. But this is being described, at least with the gallium, as the new food for the semiconductor industry. So this might sound unusual. We don't often talk about these um, materials, but they are very critical in the making of these semiconductor chips and also other electronic products. So China's now slapped export restrictions on these products. They will take effect from August the first. They say it's all about national security. Um, but the MOFCOM, the Commerce Ministry, and also the Customs Bureau who announced this uh, haven't actually explicitly said why they're doing it. But of course, the view in the market, the conclusions that are being drawn is that this is very much a tit for tat retaliation against those US sanctions. But also when you've got the likes of the Netherlands, as we've been reporting, and also Japan really jumping on the bandwagon here to support those US efforts. Now, you've also got to take into consideration how much of this stuff that China actually makes and exports to the world to understand how much of a big deal this is. Now, we've got uh, stocks, uh, companies in the business of these materials popping off the back of this news. Also, when you look at the Star Chip Index over in China, um, what this all means is that companies who are in this business now need to actually get permission from the, the authorities in order to export this stuff overseas. They need to give information now about where it's going and how it will be used and if they don't do that, they could face punishment or even criminal charges. What remains to be seen is how much of a headache that's actually going to be for some of these Chinese companies, whether they actually know what the end user um, is going to do with this product um, and where it actually goes and how much of a headache it could create even for the Customs Bureau. But, I mean, in terms of the significance here, uh, you're looking at China dominating in the rare earth space. And this is something that has been a concern for, for many years, 
when the trade war started that China may actually use this um, as leverage. So perhaps this is fueling some of those worries now that it could actually use its strategic dominance here to push back against these sanctions. At least that is the view in the market uh, at the moment. Because when you look at the gallium, you're looking at about 95% of global output coming from China. And then the germanium is, I've seen everything between 65 and 80% today uh, in terms of that production. Now, the gallium is used for things like chipsets for computers and phones. uh, And the germanium is used for fiber optics, uh, semiconductors, and also solar panels. Uh, Now, the gallium is listed actually as a strategic uh, material in places like the EU, uh, the US, and also Japan. So that is very interesting. Uh, Just for an idea of uh, where this stuff goes, the EU, for instance, uh, looks at about 20% of its exports coming from China. So no doubt the dominance here in the market could raise some eyebrows. Um, I have actually seen one state media report citing analysts in this space over in China today making a very interesting point saying these two metals are not irreplaceable. They very much acknowledge that, but they do say that looking for alternatives could cost more and hinder technical performance. They also say in terms of where to find the alternatives, the other markets are Japan, South Korea, which of course, Steve, you've just mentioned uh, their reaction to this, but also Russia, which could potentially be problematic. The other way to view this, of course, is when you look at what China's doing right now, there is this thinking that the more that the US is trying to compete with China right now in this space, the more it's going to throw backing behind its own domestic industry. So perhaps this could be seen as China basically wanting to keep this stuff for itself uh, is that as it pushes ahead with its own goals in the semiconductor chip space as it is being squeezed from every corner of the market now because um, as we have been reporting uh, we have seen the Netherlands uh, in the latest coming out to saying that they're going to be putting uh, export restrictions on uh, some of their uh, equipment and that was really largely seen as helping those US efforts to limit the technology going to China and dealing quite a fresh blow to China's ambitions here particularly when you look at companies like ASML which has this machine that China would very much like to have its hands on. Um, Then you've also had Japan which have jumped on the bandwagon earlier in the year with the US um, in some of their export controls as well. Um, Now South Korea has been a country actually in recent months that has sort of uh, put its hand up and said hey look um, this could actually hurt the semiconductor industry and raise some of its worries about that. Um, But it's interesting timing in terms of the geopolitics because this comes just ahead of Janet Yellen's visit to Beijing uh, later in the week, where no doubt um, some of this strategic dominance and these export controls will be something that will be spoken about. Guys, back to you in London. That was brilliant coverage. Thank you very much indeed for explaining this whole story for us as well. Uh, thank you, Sam. There is one question remaining, though, and, and Sam made the absolute point, the difference between germanium and a geranium. So we've actually got a picture of germanium. This is the key rare earth, and we're going to show you now. No, no, that's a blooming geranium. It's the other one. It's the other one queued up. I've got the other picture queued. Oh. But at least we now know. Can we what now a show the picture like. of germanium? I thought you were going to show the same one again. Okay, so just uh, uh, this is the FT's version of this. But right, let's go through this. Germanium 
not a geranium, which I happen to love, uh, which is used to make the first transistors in the mid-20th century is sometimes added in small quantities to silicon to facilitate more advanced chip structures. It is widely used in fiber optic cables, solar panels, and LEDs. Gallium is used in semiconductors, offering faster operation with lower power consumption or greater heat resistance, although it is harder for manufacturers to work uh, with than silicon. That is according to the Financial Times copy. Yeah, one of three major uh, raw materials effectively used. Uh, the other big one is silicon. So the question is what happens from the American side here when it comes to these uh, raw materials and whether there will be any pushback. I think it's quite key. I mean, we've been just seeing a, a huge rally play out in semiconductor stocks oh. this year on the, the assumption that the AI journey is going to fuel further demand for these particular I'm nets. having my brain, my little teeny-weeny tech brain blown out by the book I'm reading at the moment called Chip Wars, which mm. was one of the FT books of the year last year. It's talking about the whole convoluted global supply chain and how the lithography ended up in the Netherlands and the US ended up with the, the architecture for most chips and computers and then how uh, ARM got hold of the, the mobile devices and how TSMC got hold of the fab plants. And it's fascinating. But what it shows me more than anything else is it is stunningly convoluted in a globalised world that is now trying to actually localise as well. Okay, so let's pick out the uh, trade element here. And that is uh, one where you've seen it's not just the US versus China. It's the US and its allies versus China. And there's been a lot of weight applied from the Americans on the region, the likes of the Japanese, the South Koreans, to restrict some of those semiconductors being sent to China as well. So even if the US and China reach some sort of conclusion, where would that leave some of the other major players, the likes of the South Koreans, for instance, yeah. and the likes of the Japanese, if we are already seeing these restrictions around two uh, raw materials? Um, I thoroughly recommend the book to all of our viewers as well. Uh, you can thumb through it when you're not watching Scorebox. Good news is the gallery has finally got together a picture of germanium. So let's do it. Oh, God's sake, it's the wrong... That's a geranium. We now know what a geranium looks like. That's I the love upside. geraniums, but... The... It's in, in every other major The good thing is, I think unambiguously Beautiful the team fragrance. know what a barrel of oil looks like. So coming up on the show, Saudi Arabia and Russia announce fresh output cuts, but the response isn't eh, not quite what they expected. I'll, I'll show you what happened next. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. I'll have to do this relatively quickly because I've spent too much time talking about garden flowers, apparently. So let's move on. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia have announced fresh supply cuts for August, doubling down on previously published cuts from OPEC and its allies. Saudi state media revealed the country would extend its voluntary output cut of one million barrels per day in August, whilst warning it could be extended further. Russia's Alexander Novak later said Russia would uh, cut by 500,000 barrels per day in August. Now, I've got two things to say about this. One... What is this saying about this mythical, and I say mythical at the moment because we are still being told demand will pick up in the second half of the year. Demand will pick up. Well, two things say to me that is 
questionable at the moment. One uh, is the fact that the Russians and the Saudis are still cutting outside of an OPEC plus meeting. Bear in mind, this is a duopoly. Let's not pretend that this is about a broader OPEC plus. This is the two biggest players going at it on their own. The second point is, is this, and it's Contango. Let's have a look at Contango. Contango is typically a condition of a bullish market, basically a situation where the futures price of a commodity is higher than the spot. And what does that say about current demand? Because you have to pay to store that oil uh, for future supply as well. But actually, the spot is weak at the moment. So what does that say uh, about demand here and now? There's hope for the future. What does it say about hope here and now? The second point I'll raise very quickly, and Karen's coming in as well, is Look at the price action on the back of this. Another big announcement, and you can see it on the screen. This is yesterday's price action, okay? So thank you, Katie, for this one. We rallied hard. Look at the spike in the middle. You can see the spike. That's on the back of the, on the announcement. And then, yeah, yeah, the market, yeah, okay, right, fine. It's exactly back to where it was trading before the announcement. I'm watching our longer-term chart on Brent for this year, and you can see it's just been sideways action since May, despite uh, these moves on the supply side, which typically used to have much more of a shock value. Uh, Saudis, of course, in recent uh, months have been talking about the speculators out there, but uh, effectively come up with some sort of a conclusion, some sort of a deal here to reduce the amount of supply in the market. And what does it tell us about the China reopening theme? And what are they seeing in the future in terms of the ordering? Uh, is that going to be a much weaker story for longer than what the markets are anticipating and uh, the other points here around um, you know what you expect this is going to do to revenue for the kingdom that frankly is trying to pivot towards the future raise money so it can re-gear the economy so it feels like there are a number of challenges on this front around just trading the oil price as well thank you for listening to squawk box europe express for more market moving news you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.